This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Star Simpson, who is uh, an incredible sort of uh, hardware woman about town. She's an engineer and a designer and a manufacturer and someone who works uh, on, on hardware in every respect and is exactly the kind of full stack hardware innovator that uh, we like to talk with on the podcast and that we like to talk about as uh, emblematic of, of what's going on in hardware and electronics these days. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, Star. So uh, what, are you, what are you working on these days? Oh, um, I'm wrapping up a project right now that I'm very excited about. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been designing some circuit boards that I cannot wait to show the world. Mm -hmm. That's um, exciting. I believe some of your listeners at least will be familiar with the name Forrest Mims. This is the fellow whose books are at Radio Shack? Uh, yeah, his books, uh, Getting Started in Electronics, The Engineer's Notebook, and uh, several other series of books about electronics have been carried at Radio Shack uh, and other places for, for many, many years. Um, and I'm working with him to bring out some of his projects as physical hardware. Oh, that's pretty cool. I had those books when I was a child. Did you? Yeah, I could not get any of the things that I built to work. No. But uh, <laughs> I really like them. Nice. Books. So hopefully um, if you had the boards I've designed, that would fix that. It would have helped it, yeah. That'd be a, I didn't know how to solder. I was 10. A little step up. Neither of my parents are engineers, so I You know, neither of my parents are engineers it. either. My mom made it, uh, make, makes her own jewelry and my dad's a, a poet. Yeah. But that's, that's nice. like, uh, I feel like that's enough. Uh, like, you know, you, parents who are engineers is one thing, but like your parents, you know, your mom is like creative with physical things and your dad is creative. They are both creative, but I think it's a huge stretch to say it had any, uh, I don't know. <laughs> any berry. Technical creativity. But yeah, like Forest Mem stuff is great. That's the that's like the little the little pamphlets with the the, the grid paper and the handwritten yeah, the grid paper. schematics, schematics it's, and It's stuff. all hand-drawn. He actually, I got a chance to get, you know, a little video conversation with him and he showed me, he still has the mechanical pencil. It's a blue pencil, mm, yeah. 0.7 millimeters that he used to draw every page of those books. Wow. And his work ethic's incredible. He, yeah. uh, I learned, wrote the entire Getting Started in Electronics in 56 days year to finish mm. so, wow um that was mind-blowing to me to learn uh, and that includes i think it has a hundred electronics projects in it includes building each project four times oh wow to make what? sure that there weren't any mistakes so is, is he an electrical engineer he uh isn't he's self-taught okay i think i uh i think he has a history degree wow he went to a&m right Right. Yeah, it's okay. Wikipedia says Mims graduated from Texas A&M in 1966 with a major in government and minors in English and history and then went into the Air Force. Has no formal training in science. Would he say that his lack of formal training makes it easier to teach other people who don't have formal training? I don't know what he would say to that. Um, <laughs> but he's definitely a prolific educator and has dedicated his life to helping other people understand uh, electronics. Yeah. And to make that clear. That's cool. So uh, which, uh, which boards are you doing? 
I've chosen three projects to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, many engineers will recognize these as being iconic first projects. So one of them is called the Dual LED Flasher. Okay. Um, it has nine components, and you get two LEDs to flash to sort of blink. Um, and it's a very rewarding project to, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to create, to build. And this is like pre-ICs? Are these all just like you know individual resistors and it's capacitors like transistors and capacitors oh actually two of the projects do have ics okay um but they are you know early ics so yeah, they're yeah. very uh very uh bulky and expensive them, we consider <laughs> them you know simpler integrated circuits than you know today what you can get uh-huh. like an entire fm radio right now right, right, like right. but um the second project is uh audio oriented so it's taking what forrest called the stepped tone generator mm-hmm. and which uh got adopted on the uh, the streets of electronics hobbyists uh, <laughs> uh, interest and uh, got called the Atari punk console. Oh, yeah. You know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, it makes cool 8-bit noises. Uh, and so that. And the third project of the three is uh, the bar graph voltage indicator. Mm-hmm. And that project's fun because you basically build your own voltmeter. Huh. It's sort of, you know, the first, your, your engineer's engineer yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of project. But it's like analog though, right? It's not like you're like using an Arduino to read the ADC from the battery and then outputting to the bar graph. It's actually like doing the circuit that makes the bar graph light up with. Um, It's built on the LM339, which is basically what you'd call a quad comparator chip. Mm -hmm. So it has four little comparators in it and each comparator looks at a voltage and says, you know, I'll turn on if that, Mm -hmm. you know, voltage is higher than my reference or turn off if otherwise uh, I think I got that the right way around. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then you get a bar graph basically mm-hmm. made of four LEDs. So you're measuring, say, sort of heuristically roughly zero to 100% of your reference voltage. Uh-huh. Um, so you can measure other batteries, things like that. That's cool. So are you doing anything special with the, with the boards themselves to like make them more of a learning tool? Uh, I have done a number of things, which you won't find on any other circuit board. So not only do the boards have MIMS handwriting, um, as board art, so you can see the project, you can see the schematic that he drew. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also gone to lengths to make sure that you can see all of the electrical connections, and you can, you know, look at the hardware part of the board and the schematic and connect. You can see it how everything's laid out. That's cool. It's fun. That's awesome. This this reminds me of a conversation we've had periodically on the podcast about um, being able to understand electronics. At, at a more fundamental level um, than, than a lot of people do now who are getting into it, particularly as a hobby. And, and stuff mm-hmm. like the Arduino has um, made electronics so accessible and it's really mm-hmm. awesome and magnificent. But a lot of projects that uh, I, for instance, get into involve doing something very clunky with electronics and then solving the problem in software, mm-hmm. which is a great way to go. But I'm not really getting an, an appreciation for the electronics themselves. Mm-hmm. Not the physical part of it. Yeah. Is this stuff oriented towards sort of teaching people the basic electronics? You know, I think that if, you know, and is the case for a lot of electrical engineers, I know if you got started using these books, um, it's a fantastic place to, you know, to get an understanding and to go from Mm -hmm. and to really develop a love of electronics. Yeah. I'm a big fan of um, uh, The Art of Electronics by Horowitz and Hill, which I cannot claim to have completely read. Um, But there's, there's an element of that that's like, predates you know microcontrollers Mm -hmm. or inexpensive microcontrollers anyway and um it's very like 
sort of analog and fundamentally oriented. And when you open up the dust jacket on the back cover where they have the bios of Horowitz and Hill, I think it's Hill, Winfred Hill, whose bio says something like, Mr. Hill has designed over 1,000 scientific instruments. And he's like, he's in his little black and white photo, he's holding this like giant sort of glass enclosed vacuum tube or something like that that he's <laughs> presumably cool. designed himself. Mm-hmm. And there's this element of like these pioneers who mm. went before you mm-hmm. and like understood this stuff and mm-hmm. it's completely outside of the kind of common um, understanding now. Mm. There's a little bit of that. I mean, I think so much of what uh, Forrest has done is to make electronics understandable, to make them something that, you know, anyone can do. I think, mm-hmm. you know, my experience in working with him is that, you know, he really does believe that you, know, you can just build electronics. Anyone can come and, you know, understand how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also, I think, you know, he exists in this space where, you know, he his work is the kind of thing you'd want to show the next generation to have that experience of, you know, like you said about, you know, breadboarding your first circuits and like just starting to understand how these things go. So um, your boards are kits for people who are doing the experiments themselves or they're like the completed versions of the? You get um, a handful of parts in the circuit boards um, and some accessories. And uh, I've also worked it out so you'll be able to get the books. Um, as a like bundle mm. and another part of the design that I did was to make them the most pleasing boards to solder mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so it does require a little bit of soldering um, but then you know it's all laid out so it how work. did you fix it to be pleasing to solder ah that was a good uh, <laughs> this is one of those subtle details that I just I guess most people won't notice but mm. on the front side of the board um, the amount of basically gold pad space available is somewhat uh, slim as is mm-hmm. normally true mm-hmm. um but i've on the reverse side of the board where you would do the soldering i've enlarged them to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. allow for so if you have a big tip or something like that solder right exactly so it's easier for like 12 year old hands to solder absolutely yeah i'm you know this is designed for you know when i was just starting to learn what yeah, that yeah. was like mm-hmm. how did you learn how did you learn how to how to be an electronics um Women about ten. Oh gosh, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I actually did get started uh, with a book that I think w- was definitely published uh, by the Tandy Corporation. No way. Um, oh. <laughs> that I found in my school's computer computer lab mm-hmm. uh, that had been like sort of an abandoned computer lab that no one used, and that you know sometimes the teachers would unlock it for us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I found this book, and it was like twenty one transistor and electronics project or something like that yeah, yeah. yeah i have been unable to find this book again since but it was a cool book it was such a cool book and it worked me through uh you know building my own circuit with memory or like building my own like conductive electronics game and logic mm-hmm. too so like building up logic gates and understanding how all that worked and what i was 14 and i remember this summer um you know i was like I went home with the book and I was like, mm-hmm. you know, hey mom, like I have this book and I can, I'm going to need a good number of electronic parts to do this. I realized my mom got me entertained for three months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I woke deal. up every day and I built one project after another in that book. Wow. I like, spent just all day working on it. Yeah. Um, until I'd done, I'd worked through the whole thing. Yeah. I just thought it was so cool. How did you even get electronic components? Oh, then? Radio Shack. Radio Shack, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that strikes Back me is Radio like Shack sold things like that. Right. But also even then Radio Shack Slash didn't was have in business. that many components. Like if you if you wanted That's to true. do something bigger, I just can't I can't imagine the barriers to being like a 
a kid who's really into electronics today, yeah. anyone can go on DigiKey and order any any electronic component. Oh, but you know that's such a that's such a specialized thing already. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, we are we are in many ways living in you know Radio Shack's still around, not mostly I think here in San Francisco, but mm-hmm. um, we are in many ways in a post Radio Shack world, and I think it is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you know that's part of my motivation for doing this is to say you know this is for the you know the me then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, although I'd say even then some of the chips I was looking for that were on my list were starting to go out of series and mm-hmm. you know I think I remember this like half day or this is again in like the parts buying phase where my mom drove me like halfway around where we lived <laughs> because you know there was some specific transistor that yeah. the book yeah. specified that Radio Shack was like ah oh, we don't carry this you know this yeah. is no longer being made so we, we went out we drove around for like half a day and we ended yeah. up at like a car stereo dealership uh-huh. and like you uh-huh. know just anyone who might have anything electronic to ask yeah yeah and uh, we finally met I remember this guy who had like you know the front counter store and then the back room yeah yeah and the catalog and he'd mm-hmm. look up the part number mm-hmm. and he found the equivalent transistor and was like this is exactly the thing you need yeah. i realize now that this is probably like the simplest yeah it probably doesn't even matter yeah and, you know i, I figure it's probably just like a pnb transistor that yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know radio shack was out of that day <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it was not that specific but i remember like treasuring this yeah. very precious right, part right, right. you know yeah i remember those days as a kid when when you know my mom would indulge something that i wanted to like invent or play with and i need like a servo motor or yeah. something and and um, without an internet to look up where you could buy a servo motor, you just kind of like start going to auto parts stores mm-hmm. and Radio Shack and maybe some like, hell, why not some office supply stores? And, and see, usually they didn't have whatever we were looking for in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, but and my I was a much less sophisticated electronics kid than than you were. So it's like it's it's uh, it's hard you, to imagine. You can't see me then. <laughs> We had one of those shops. Mom took me to the Mountain States Electronics in Fort Collins, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And it's totally one of the front desk catalog back room kind of situations where you go in and, and ask them if they have it. And they plop the big book on the table right. on the counter and you look through it. And he's like, I'll be right back. And then comes back and brings like a, a dusty, tiny envelope right, yeah. that's clearly been that. back there for like 20 years. Oh <laughs> I miss those shops. I feel yeah. I feel a little sad for the shops all closing down. You know, there's a what Al Lasher's in Berkeley here in the Bay Area. Al Asher's? Al, uh, Al Lasher's. Al Lasher's. It's still, still in operation, still like that. Have you ever been down to Halted or HSC in uh, Santa Clara? Yeah. Brian yeah, and I went trip. to Halted a few yeah. months ago. It was great. Yeah. We found a big bin, just like a big cardboard box full of Blackberry handsets. Mm. It was just labeled like Blackberries, $5. Um, wow. it, it's really been just about everything there is now either secondhand or remaindered. Mm. And I don't know what it was like 30 years ago. But at this point, it's, it's, um, it's hard to imagine needing a particular part. And then driving down to halted and finding exactly that. Well, the thing is, it's like often you don't know what part that you want, right? Like, I mean, I like to go to the shop and like look for LEDs and like, oh, this this one's like rectangle and like this one's like this one's red and this one's like slightly different red and this one is you know, and you like feel all the switches and you like it's nice to see because you kind of get inspiration mm-hmm. from hanging out mm-hmm. and looking around at what there is. That feels like something that's changed about how we sort of shop generationally. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. where we go to stores to like see and feel without knowing as much about what we specifically want. Yeah. Hmm. But is that that possible for the most part at the... So what kind of store is is Al Lasher's in Berkeley? It's it's this type of old school Mm -hmm. electronic store where you you ask for five transistors and they put them in a little plastic baggie and staple the top for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like buying candy, you know. Exactly. It's so good. Are they friendly or are they curmudgeonly? Uh, Depends. Uh, I haven't been back in a while. Maybe friendly curmudgeons. 
that's that's the kind of I mean, shopkeepers. It's, just, it's hard not to places. feel great buying electronics. Yeah. So. yeah. But like yeah, in, yeah. in Waco, when I lived in Waco, Texas, I used to go to uh, Billy Asbell's Radio Emporium. My goodness. Yeah, which is pretty fantastic. And it's like this family-owned business, and it's like all these dudes and people sitting behind this like bullpen desk, and like the room smells like smoke, and everyone is named Billy. And they have, <laughs> um, yeah, and they, they have like a barn full of every single vacuum tube you could ever imagine. And they have like shelves full, yeah, just all that, yeah. Those yeah. shops. Are good, One thing good I liked about uh, Al Lazar's is I think last time I went there, it seems to be a family-run operation, and mm. I think I've only ever met women working there. Really? Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, tell us about the manufacturing process for your boards. Oh sure. Um, big shout out to Osh Park, who I want to say have been just absolutely phenomenal to work with on this project. I've used them for all of the prototyping. Um, they are, if you're not familiar, uh, an operation that you submit board files to and they collect, you know, John, your order, David, your order, and then mine. And then they basically will order a panel mm -hmm. from the board house as soon as the panel is filled up. And that means, uh, and so the panel is like the sheet that the circuit board manufacturer uses to make the circuit boards. And that means that we can all get our boards, um, for not very much compared to what it would cost for a board house to run one mm -hmm. panel for one person, say. So they're board consolidators. Sort of. Exactly. Yeah. They they aggregate orders and then ship them off. And then and they've been absolutely fantastic for prototyping. Awesome. So um how and how how easy was it to get these made? Like did you encounter any any special oh. So with Oshparka, you know, it's fully automated. They're fantastic. When I, you know, the the few times I had a question because my board designs are somewhat, uh, you know, a little unusual, they were right there. Mm -hmm. um, and then to scale up, I started talking to other manufacturers and uh, that was a lot more amusing. Um, so of course, you know, I have forests like hand drawings mm -hmm. on the circuit boards. And so I've had a, a few eyebrows raised about that. I think a normal... Gerber package, so that's the the zip file with all your board designs. Mm -hmm. It's maybe like a megabyte, two megabytes. Mine weigh in about thirty. Yeah, because <laughs> um, you have like bitmap bit art of right. Forestman's drawings. Uh, actually, I, I can say more about that. No bitmaps. So in huh. order to preserve quality, I've avoided the bitmap style, which is uh -huh. normally how you get graphics on a board. But um, how are you doing it? Uh, I've managed to. Oh gosh. To do vector graphics all the way down somehow. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Wow. This is the thing that I've been struggling with lately in my designs. So it's I'm, big, I'm very, I'm it's very interested pain. in knowing. Well, so what, what's your, what's your pipeline? So I have his books. Uh -huh. I have Illustrator. Right. I can then export DXFs, mm -hmm. which are terrible coming out of Illustrator, right? I does do, your Illustrator do, do a lot okay? of work. Okay. Yeah. I make them good. <laughs> yeah. And then from DXF into Eagle. Okay. As polygons. Mm -hmm. And then I have to guess the scale and. Importing would take a couple yeah. hours, and then mm -hmm. if I didn't like what scale it came in at, I have to do it again. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to do I've been doing similar things with Altium. Have you found the thing where Illustrator exports DXFs with four copies of the same lines on top of each other? Uh, no, I, I figured <laughs> out the settings for doing this a long time ago, and I haven't yeah. changed them. Yeah, because that that happened to me, but I, I eventually have come to the conclusion because I've been messing with putting high res artwork on my stuff lately mm -hmm. and I eventually settled on uh, doing the board layout and like all team or whatever and then exporting the Gerbers and then there's there's a company called Numerical Innov Innovations which has a product called Fab 3000 which is like a high-end uh, cam and Gerber like editor thing oh, cool. and it has a very well working PDF importer huh. and so it costs like $80 a month to license but whenever I finish a design I just like 
call up the sales lady and say like, can you sign me up for a month and then make my subscription cancel it? And then I, and then I, and then I export my artwork from illustrator as a PDF and then combine that with the, like in the Gerber file, like that's the weirdest thing is because it doesn't actually all get combined until the Gerber file. They're going to hear you now and they're going to be sad. I've told, I've told her all this stuff. Okay. I've also asked her if I can have like a punch card or if I can have like a, <laughs> or if I can have some kind of like, you know, but it's the only software that'll do it like nicely. Yeah, because I was doing, I mean, at least in Altium, like I was trying to bring in things directly and it would just crunch for a really, really long time and sometimes crash. And yeah, it's bad. Eagle has crashed. It's on me hard. A yeah. Times. Like it's really hard to get EDA tools to, to like do non rectilinear They're not built for things. visual yeah. work. There is one tool. There is a run made by one guy who is, I think, just so far ahead of. Oh, this is the guy else. in England, right? This is Boldport. the. Old board, yeah. Old board. Yeah, His yeah. name is Sar Drimmer, um, yeah. and he's making some of the most beautiful circuit boards I think I've ever seen. Huh. And he so clearly has like a rich understanding of sort of the history of electronics manufacturing. Yep. He's able to build boards that really reference, you know, the old ways of designing things mm -hmm. uh, from different eras, and has built his own software that hmm. lets him design the boards using Inkscape fully. Oh, the entire wow. the entire path is in Inkscape, and then his software uh, parses the output and yeah, turns yeah, it into yeah. board files. Didn't he have like a, a feature in some fancy fashion magazine? Lately? Yeah, I think he was in L, I think. I think really? it was L, one of those. I can't, I'm pretty sure it was. We'll, we'll include links to this in the show notes attached to this episode of the podcast. Yeah, and they, they posed his circuit boards with some extremely beautiful jewelry. Wow. Yeah. I want to see these. Hot circuits. Marie Claire, Marie Claire US. Forgive me, Marie Claire, go. not L. I don't read any of those magazines. Well, you should. They're all about circuit boards, apparently. Obviously. For shame. Yeah. For shame. I mean, I actually thought about going to the store and buying a copy of this episode, of this issue because it was pretty cool the way that they've in, in integrated You the, just read it for the circuit boards. Yeah. I just read it for the circuit boards. You know? Come on. Come, come on. There's a whole <laughs> yeah. set of people you're, uh, who read that who, uh, right, who right. might be listening. These are gorgeous. And I love it, too, because it's not just like a throw to a hardware-ish aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. It's it actually, also, you know, he has an understanding of the function of the board. Exactly. Right, right, right. Did you see Bunny Huang's uh, China sourcing book lately? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On, uh, on CrowdSupply. On CrowdSupply. It was good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did, you see, did you see his blog post about designing the cover for that in Altium and like trying to make it look like it might be a functional circuit, even though it isn't? So yeah. he designed the cover in, in Altium? Yeah. Instead of Illustrator or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I love that. Going the other direction. Yeah, totally, totally. All right, so so now it's time to do another one of our recurring segments called Tools. So, so I mean, we, we like to ask uh, guests, you know, what, what are the favorite tools that you use? And it can be really anything. Um, you know, we've had answers, answers ranging from CAD tools to, like, Microsoft Excel. Anyway, Gosh. what do you got? Well, <laughs> you I know you, uh, you and John, thank you, you sent, sent me this question to think about. Uh, and honestly, the, the thing I was going to share was the uh, the way I've designed my tool chain to allow the import of graphics into Eagle. Awesome. Oh. Um, where uh, I think this is pretty tricky, but now having designed a series of um, beautiful electronics, uh, both the current project I'm working on and uh, the card I designed for Octopart, which some people have seen previously. The multicolor one. The multicolor one. So from that, is that's where I first learned, I think, to use Adobe tools to design circuit boards. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's my current favorite. 
So the awesome. Octopart card, tell us about that because that that is that, that requires an interesting manufacturing process to oh, create. Oh yeah, right? sure. I'm happy to talk about that. That was uh, an information graphic design project where I came up with I think the most compressed depiction of the resistor color code chart mm. that I've seen, and hmm. had to figure out how to design a circuit board that could have eleven colors on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big adventure in manufacturing. So did you have a like? I mean, what? So it's like, how many colors are on it, did you say? I think, if I recall correctly, the reverse side of the board has 11 colors on it. And so is that is that just multiple solder mask layers or multiple silk screens? or? So for that project, uh, we were no longer able to use solder mask process. Um, I've had boards made where I had multiple colors of solder mask on one side of a board. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that's been interesting. Um, but for 11, you can't, you know, get the registration right because you have to run the process over and over. And hmm. then also your costs get quite high. Um, so we found a printer who is able to do that using a digital printing process. It's digitally printed? That's right. Onto the uh... As opposed to what it would usually be silk screened? or Yeah. So initially we were pursuing uh, silk screening. Wait, so mm-hmm. you found a printer who could print onto FR4? That's right. Whoa. And, uh, and, the like... printer is uh, RSP Inc. and they're in Milwaukee. So is it, and so like, is, is there actually like a solder mask for the, you know, functionality and then you've printed print on top of it? So the first half of the board, the front half is uh, basically a chip footprint reference. So it has, you know, a whole variety of different chip footprints so you can sort of, you know, this has actually been helpful to me while I was designing boards. You easily lose your sense of scale because you're so zoomed in you're like, oh yeah, that's totally reasonable. And you you get the thing made and you can't actually solder it. It's too small. So I made that, you know, to order keep a handle on that and the reverse side we shipped it to them with no solder mask they ended up preferring to print right onto the fiberglass themselves oh, okay hmm. and the paint they found is tough i've seen people who've carried their this card in their wallets now for years what kind of printing process do they use that i'm led to understand was a direct digital printing process okay we move on now to our next uh, segment which is called click spiral and this is where each of us brings in uh, one thing that's been consuming us on the internet lately something we just can't close the tabs on um, if you, the listener, would like to inflict a click spiral upon us, you can email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. And then David and I will waste a few hours on it and talk about it on a future version of the podcast. So let's uh, start with David's click spiral. What, what have you been clicking on this week? Uh, well, I found um, the internet. There is a YouTube user called Seth Bling who does things with, with uh, hacking classic video game things and and he came out with this video that that details him doing a, a code injection attack on the original Super Mario World game which hmm. sounds kind of dry but the result is that he played Super Mario World in a certain way and took advantage of some exploits in the code and made it turn into a game of Flappy Bird and hmm. so you know the uh you got you guys know that the the XKCD comic about little little bobby tables and yeah. SQL mm-hmm. injection attacks like you know, if you've named something wrong, then the parser does it wrong and then it goes into the wrong place. Well, with, you know, other computer programs can be hacked in similar ways. So, like, for example, um, when people jailbroke the the Nintendo Wii, it was because they were able to figure out that that there was no guard at the end of the array that stores the name of Link's horse in the, in the Zelda game for Wii. And so they were able to name Link's horse a certain thing that's actually a little chunk of code and then have that go and execute a larger chunk of code that's stored on the SD card and then install your own applications from that. Because so, there are methods that are acting on the name of Link's horse? Well, because if you have a, if you have, yeah, because, because it loads that variable into memory and it like, and it reads it. Mm-hmm. So, so if you, you know, can store longer things in it. You can you can have the pointer overflow to the end of it, and then it ends up 
somewhere else that the original programmer wasn't intending. And if you know where that somewhere else is and make it go to that somewhere else, then then you can do it. And so what this guy did is figured out there's like a bug with the way that the power-up state of Mario is... Um, I don't think it was actually the Seth Bling guy he talks about. There's other collaborators, P4 plus 2 and Mr. Cheese, who helped a lot with the project. Um, but there's like a bug in the way that the power-up state of Mario is stored. So like the variable that stores this, whether you're small Mario or big Mario or feather Mario or star Mario or whatever, you know, increments like 0 to 3 or 0 to 4 or something. But if you interact with a block in a certain way, it like skips the way that it increments in the top guard of that. So you can put, the, you can put the, that variable into an unknown state. And then you kind of keep doing tricks like this to bootstrap. And then it gets the game into a state where if you do a spin jump, when you're at a certain place, you know, whenever you do a spin jump, it'll store the X location of Mario, hmm. you know, the number of the X location of Mario in the level into a certain place in memory. So he, used, he uses this and, and he's doing this all by hand. They like worked on it for months beforehand and actually figured out, you know, what the, what the numbers that they need to store in memory are and puts that in and then implements a little bootloader like that and then actually inputs code, they worked out what assembly, you know, the smallest assembly implementation of Flappy Bird would be, and then actually does this by walking back and forth in the Mario level and, hmm. and jumping and doing stuff at the right time. And then the game drops into Flappy Bird starring Mario. No way. And it's wow. pretty crazy. And it's gotten like, people have done some stuff like this before. I think someone made a, a hack on the original Pokemon games that, you know, let them load Pong or like a music player or something mm -hmm. like that. But usually it's, you know, if you're inputting hundreds or thousands of lines of code by moving things around or like importing keyboard controls precisely, you have to do it exactly right perfectly. And so they usually run it in an emulator and make some kind of spoofer that pretends to be the controller and input these things and see if the code. But th what's cool about this is that that these guys like planned it out for like a couple months beforehand and then actually sat down into a live stream of him playing the controller and inputting all these commands manually. And it's and like breaking the game and also turning it into something completely different, which is like pretty awesome. Anything can be a computer if you exactly. inject code into it properly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, there there are um, a handful of fun examples of uh, people, you know, playing Pong on industrial control systems, stuff like that, right? You kind of like mm -hmm. hack, and it's it's a very friendly kind of hacking. I like this kind of hacking, but it is it it it, it emphasizes that there are computers in so many things, well, and they're actually like, more flexible than you think. It's like the original definition of hacking, right? It's like just kind of figuring out how to make something do something that it wasn't originally designed to do. Yeah. Who's up next? I'll go. John? John's up next? All right. Yeah, here's my click spiral. Yeah. So I enjoy seltzer water and other carbonated sorts of beverages. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think we I think we can all agree that, that they're great. Um, I make my own kombucha at home, which is kind of a uh, um, tangy and sometimes disgusting. Oh, and you keep uh, it in like a gallon. You keep it in like a handle Jim Beam jar too. Like it came yeah, from your place for, for lunch one day and you pulled that out of the fridge and you were like, you want a drink? And I was like, <laughs> That's yeah. funny. I used yeah. to brew kombucha also. I don't oh, you did? Any, yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you, what, uh, did, did you stop at some point? Um, I did stop. For me, it was mainly uh, when I lived in Boston, I brewed kombucha. Okay. But you, you should do it in California of all places. Uh, why, why here? It's, it's a, it feels like a California thing to brew kombucha. You know, uh, maybe you're right. I think I remember you posted on the Miters mailing list once or twice about like trying to find materials for kombucha or like sharing of so mothers ago, or something but, like you know, that. Yeah. yeah. Did you, Sounds um, plausible. did you just uh, generate your uh, kombucha culture from a bottle of commercial kombucha no, or did you I order got it one? From someone. It was oh, like wow. a hand it was around. An heirloom kombucha? It was, an, it was actually, that's actually true. It was an heirloom kombucha mother. Wow. Nice. It must have been, you know, thicker than a deep dish, deep dish pizza by the time. Yeah, I got yeah, it. yeah. Awesome. 
it's you uh, just take a little piece of it when you, I've never done this before. So they actually form these layers over time, mm -hmm. and so after a certain point, you can peel off a layer. Oh wow! And then give, give that to, to someone. Yeah, and so it's uh, the way you usually make it is um, in an open jar for a little while. You let it ferment, and then you rebottle it into a closed uh, bottle, and it it carbonates itself. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're John Bruner. Unless you're me, and you find that two step process inconvenient and um, difficult to calibrate. And uh, you just want to like ferment the the kombucha and then carbonate it. So I've I bought a um, a CO two regulator and the the proper hoses and valves and a ten pound um, bottle of carbon dioxide from a uh, soft drink soda fountain supplier nice. uh, last week. And um, I am carbonating everything now, and it's so much fun. You just like it. You you connect carbonate this the connect this hose to any PET plastic bottle with yeah. the right threading, and then you open the the regulator, and it goes. Nice. And and you want in the bottle like inflates, and then if you shake the bottle, it it absorbs the carbon dioxide. It it dissolves the carbon dioxide into the water, and it, it actually starts to crumple up again. And then you add more carbon dioxide, and it's oh, great. Nice. So the click spiral that I got into was like looking at at um, you know what the experts on the internet have done with carbonation, and um, there's a community that that uh, has gone through a really well documented effort to replicate certain famous mineral waters at home. Oh man! So they've documented the amount of carbonation that's in them, as well as all the minerals that are in them, and they've published how to um, find these minerals in common sort of household substances and how to get them to dissolve in your mineral water. So um, in addition to adding, you know, salt and um, baking soda, which, which, you know, give you a lot of the key minerals, the sorts of things that uh, people put in, in their homemade seltzer to emulate, you know, say Vichy water um, includes a plaster of Paris, Epsom salt, chalk, milk of magnesia, and um, oh slaked gosh. lime. David and I are making Whoa. really good yeah. faces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly thirsty. Yeah, you had me. You, uh, had, yeah. you had me at milk of magnesia. <laughs> yeah, don't you want a tall glass yeah. of Epsom salts? Yeah. <laughs> you had me at chalk. Yeah, yeah. plaster. Would like plaster of Paris for your water? Yeah, you know at chalk. Yeah, so I wasn't thirsty before. I am now. <laughs> there's a there's a um, a downloadable Excel workbook that helps you calculate how much you know Epsom salt you should put in your liter of homemade um, seltzer water. So which, which mineral waters do they have similar recipes? Also, wait, what's, to, what's Vichy water? I'm, is, I'm I, I just assumed it was a brand of, of water. That's a brand of water uh, that actually comes from California. From There's a, a, a spring called Vichy Springs in um, well, Napa County. They named it that. But there's also a Vichy Springs in France that it's probably named after. And these, these are like, you know, unpleasant tasting like health waters Healthy. from Very the good. 19th century I that... See. You no know, one. I mean, if yeah. if you think you'll be cured by mineral water, have your gout cured by mineral water or yeah. whatever, and you know, that's cool. Um, so but now people drink them recreationally. Yeah, people drink them recreationally, and it's just kind of an old school thing. So this includes, uh, let's see, Badois, Aquapana, Hargita, Kessel, Mountain Valley Spring, Perrier. Okay, so you can DIY Perrier. So yeah, yeah, yeah. San okay. Pellegrino. Oh, San Pellegrino. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, you can you can DIY San Pellegrino. I'm somewhat more on board now. Yeah, Volvic, Voss. I, I was ready to ask you, John, if, if you're okay, but <laughs> yeah, like I have okay. not I have not done any of these. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I've just I've just uh, click spiraled through them. I see. And, yeah. um I haven't. Uh, I don't I know if I could tell the difference them. between Perrier and San Pellegrino. 
I bet if you tasted them next to each other. We yeah. should have a tasting. We, we should. should have a tasting. That would be really fun, water, actually. Water tasting. We could have a water tasting on the podcast. We Most should. boring, disgusting sound for people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank mm, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but ASMR it, fans out there. Oh, yeah, man. exactly. There are some, uh, yeah, so there are some that are that are um, pretty light tasting, but then some some waters that you can get in like a little glass bottle from Europe, you know, from some legendary like medicinal spring in Europe taste super strong and unpleasant. So yeah. if you really like that strong, unpleasant milk of magnesia um, taste in your water, uh, you can there's a website for you. Yeah, you is. can make it at home with a carbonator and, um, you know, some some household chemicals. Perfect. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Actually, that reminds me of something, John. Can I tell you about a, a drink I tried making using a carbonator? Yeah, yes. please. Not at all water. In fact, this drink came about after talking to a friend mm-hmm. who, I will say, loves gin and tonics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Favorite drink. Only drink. Gin and tonics. And one complaint you might have is that your gin and tonic is not strong enough. And one way to fix that might be, instead of mixing tonic water, keyword water, mm-hmm. big problem. Put more gin into it? You could do that to a point, but you know, is that a really good cocktail? Yeah. Maybe instead what you could do is make a tonic syrup, uh-huh. so quinine, um, and then mix that with just gin. Oh, I see. Mm. Yeah. So you have that's the concentrated flavors, better. but with the high alcohol content. Yeah, and now the trouble is no carbonation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So what do you do? Carbonate your you gin. Carbonate. carbonate the gin. Yeah. Wow. And gin will actually hold carbonation. That's what I was going to say. Does the really? alcohol do absorb? For like, a little it, bit. Yeah. Uh-huh. For a little bit. So you can, it's very fine bubbles. You can carbonate the gin. Tiny bubbles? Mix it with. For your drink? I'm not going to stop and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you can make a, a gin and tonic, which has no uh, no tonic, no water in the tonic. Wow. That's pretty cool. Because that's what everyone wishes the morning after drinking gin is that they'd had more gin the night before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not the one looking at mixing chocolate yeah, yeah. water. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was also saying you should, you should carbonate some fruit. We were talking about this at lunch. You uh, can, yeah, you can yeah, carbonate yeah. fruit. As long as yeah. we're carbonating things. Yeah, so that's my click spiral. That's good. Very cool. Star. Star. What's I've got click a spiral? click spiral. Of course, I've got a good click spiral here. Um, the click spiral I've gone into lately is just thinking about building uh, buildings mm-hmm. and how things used to be versus how they are now. Um, it's of course a big question in San Francisco, but I've been looking at some of East Coast buildings, in particular the Empire State Building. Mm. And uh, one thing I didn't realize, uh, I just recently learned. So if you had to guess, I just want to ask you, if you had to guess, how long do you think it took to, the Empire to State build building? that Empire State Building? Two years. Five years. Five years, two years. Uh, so I'll say this, uh, excavation of the site began in 1930. Okay. And it opened April 1931. What? Yeah. Wow. And had nothing like that had ever been built before. But I thought that was so fascinating because it's like inconceivable today to build a building that quickly. Same for the Eiffel Tower. So I went on a a little bit of a journey through old buildings, which was, uh, you know, started in 19, uh, sorry, 1887 Mm -hmm. and opened 1889. Wow. Wow. And it was a a complete uh, structural novelty at the time. Totally new. There's probably a lot of custom parts in that too. Yeah. Well, it, there are a lot of things that take a whole lot longer to build now with modern technology than they did a hundred years ago. I mean, the Second Avenue subway in New York, even even you know, accounting for the fact that it was stalled for a couple of decades, has taken as long to build um, roughly a mile on the Upper East Side as uh, large parts of the initial subway system did wow. collectively. Oh wow. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm you know 
certainly the complexity has gotten higher and that's something complexity that, like, is higher novelty is lower <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we're less fascinated by our own major works projects. We're less, yeah. mm-hmm. maybe less collectively interested in like improving the city. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. it's, it's ho- yeah. so hard to tell how cultures change, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's such a clear symptom of what's different that I found that just utterly fascinating. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, we already have subways, and they're fine. And now, like the because uh, we live in a in a developed country, um, there's not a lot of excitement over the kinds of marginal improvements that we. That we're making now so this has been click spiral uh, and if any of you the listeners have click spirals that you'd like to send us remember just email us at hardware at o'reilly.com and david and i will immerse ourselves in them and um, talk about them on a future episode of the podcast all right star it's been awesome having you on if if people want uh to uh to find you on the internet mm-hmm. and maybe to order your boards sure uh, where do they go well um, the first place I'd suggest people go is to find out more about the boards. Currently, they're on CrowdSupply, crowdsupply.com slash star hyphen Simpson slash circuit hyphen classics. <laughs> and so it's called Circuit Classics. That's right. You can find it just by searching for Circuit Classics. Awesome. Nice. I'm also on Twitter. I am stars and robots. Stars awesome. and robots on Twitter. That's an awesome Twitter handle. Thank you. Is that an early Twitter handle? Very early, actually. I Do you thought, know what your Twitter ID is? Oh gosh, no! I'm sure I can find the uh, find it. I, I honestly, I registered that name because uh, at the time, someone I knew had the email address robots, and uh-huh. you know, this was sort of like a Twitter we made just for like a one-off thing, and then uh, I've since still used it. Uh, yeah, yeah, ever yeah. Since because because you can always tell like uh, pretty early people on Twitter will have like their three-letter first name, you know, Zach. Sure. Or yeah. you know Ned or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, really early people on Twitter have like a weird arcane inside joke like name. Underscore, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Dips or right. something like that. And and uh, like your yeah. AOL, AOL instant messenger screen name from like seventh grade or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm under the first two million Twitter ID. Wow, really? That's impressive. They're up there. They they got well into the billions before they before they changed their numbering scheme. So that's cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Star. It's been great having you on. Hey, it's been great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Star. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>